Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Nathan, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast. Thank you, mate. It's always a pleasure. I remember our last chat. Uh, it was so much fun. Uh, I was wrecked before that, <laughs> and then I came in and chat with you, and it was just it was just awesome. So I'm sure listeners will get a lot from this, and uh, just to hear about things about like what you've been working on lately and and how you've been going. So um, as usual, we'll start with some quick icebreakers, which I think will elicit some interesting responses. So um, intelligent investor launching a global fund right now. So I want to ask you a question, given that you've no doubt been researching dozens and dozens of different businesses is who's the best global CEO you've come across? Yeah, so this is really boring and I apologize. Um, Obviously, it's a long field or a long list out there. But, um, you know, I was just reading Warren Buffett's Berkshire letter yesterday and it was very short, but it's like, you know, he's running out of time and he just doesn't care anymore. And it was just some of the, um, not nasty, just straightforward stuff Hmm. I've seen him say in a long time and I thought it was great. But when I was thinking about these CEOs, I was thinking about all these wonderful businesses and I was thinking um, a guy called, if I pronounce it right, uh, AJ Banger, who used to run MasterCard up until two or three years ago. Um, you know, MasterCard, I think, increased revenues four times and profits fivefold in the mm-hmm. 10 years that he was the CEO. Now, was that just because he was in the right spot at the right time and it was such a great business, you know, most likely? Um, but he's been tapped as, um, I think, the ne- next World Bank chief at the moment. Um, so so that was that's an astounding record. Um, but Warren Buffett, to me, really sets the standard. And it's not just because of the value he's created for shareholders, which I, I'm guessing is pretty much second to none. It's just the way he's treated shareholders along the way. I think that's a, um, a really important part of it. There's no other CEO that's provided as much information as candidly or has done as much for individual investors as what he does, uh, what he has uh, and the fact that he created billionaires from his share for for his shareholders over time, to have done it for so long, mm. like just remarkable. Like you know, even me at the moment, I just like I hate this part of the cycle where you've got high valuations and lots of disappointment to come, and there's it's almost like there's nowhere to hide. You've got to pick pick your poison basically. Do you pick the value stocks where there's more earnings risk, or do you go with the really high quality and suffer valuation risk? You know, PE multiple contraction. Um, so there are a couple, but a couple other standouts, and these will be very familiar names to American investors, but Jamie Dimon at um, JP Morgan has done an astounding job over a long period of time. I saw a headline the other day, I think they said in a few years it'd be a $1 trillion business. Um, a guy, wow. um, I don't normally spend so much time on banks, but I was just, uh, um, Brian Moynihan was someone I remember just getting castigated when he took over at Bank of America during the GFC and he's done a great job. You know, he just seems to be a steady hand and uh, but the amount of criticism he faced when he came in was a real baptism of fire, um, especially when he was getting forced to do things he didn't really want to do and he knew were going to be really painful for shareholders. And that's a really tough thing to do. Mm. Um, one in Australia who's done really well is Ross McEwen um, at NAB. You know, that NAB was just a basket case since the 90s. Uh, I think so it was the home side yeah. acquisition. Like it's just been sort of dead in the water. I remember getting, um, when I was, uh, I think I was 17 and I was a shareholder, maybe I was 18. And I remember getting a, a share purchase plan letter in the mail, and I was so naive back then. I thought they were doing me this huge favor, you know, offering me these shares at $19.50. $19.50, this is 1999. 
<laughs> you know, like this is 24 years ago and the share price has barely improved since and yet we've had the most incredible credit and housing boom ever you could imagine and the share price has barely budged, you know, and, and it hadn't budged um, until he took over. So he had a real rough time of it um, with Royal Bank of Scotland, you know, through the GFC. It was, I think it was just, um, you know, the, the business was just such a basket case, government ownership, fines, just all sorts of stuff. So he didn't quite get the results that um, he would have liked, but, you know, he's really shown that he's um, the man for the job at NAB. Mm. Um, one other one I'll mention, I'm not going to name his name because I'm a kid from Mount Gambier and I just, I don't think I can pronounce it correctly. Um, but there's this bank, and and I anyone who's interested in international vest, investing, just go and have a look at these numbers. You've never seen anything like it. If I showed you the revenue and, and profit numbers for this business over the last 25 years or so, I think 28 years since it's been listed, you would think this was the greatest technology stock you've ever seen. Mm. Um, this is an Indian bank, HDFC. The CEO for most of that period, uh, he handed it over to his right-hand man um, two or three years ago. Um, but the annual earnings growth was between 25 and 35 percent for like 23 years, and it's still running at 20 or 25 percent. Uh, it seems too good to be true. It's just absolutely remarkable. So it's one of those situations where you're not really sure how much was due to management and how much was due to the business. And again, being that right spot at the right time. But uh, the public banks um, have had real problems in India at times with bad debts and. HDFC has just seemed to have skipped most of that and just had this incredible earnings track record. So there's a few bank CEOs that sometimes I think bank CEOs don't earn their money. And then there's, you find these other occasions and go, geez, they've earned, earned all of it. Mm, wow. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, that's one heck of a list. The last time you came on, we talked about like the 10 to 20 best ASX companies and how you find them. Um, and then there's a handful of really good global CEOs there and one Aussies too. So that's cool. Okay. Next question is, um, if you could pick one, just, if I just literally just gave you the financials, I said the cash flow statement over three years or the P and L, the profit and loss over five years, which would you choose to use to analyze the company? Absolutely. The cash flow statement. And, um, not only is that the, the answer I'd always give, but I think it's particularly important right now. Um, the problem with the earnings numbers, and this is particularly international, and you know all analysts are aware of this, but it's just so important. Is you know I'll just give one example: is the share compensation with these technology stocks in America. You know, so you imagine you're Facebook, and uh, you know you're not like one of our mutual friends who missed out on the job in the first ten people at Facebook. <laughs> and uh, should be a billionaire, and uh, you know you you don't you don't get offered this big salary because your business is still very early days. It hasn't really sorted out who it is or what it's going to be, and who knows what it's whether it's going to be successful or not. But you get issued all these shares. Um, now to start with, that makes plenty of sense because you're a cash strapped business. You're operating with a pretty thin sort of financial lifeline from venture capital, and but all of a sudden you are successful. And we've seen these technology stocks in America who just go bananas. Now we all know the fangs, but there are plenty of more under that that most people wouldn't have heard of. And and the expense at the moment of those um, shares and options is just like blowing away the profits. And a lot of people say, well, they're not really cash. Well, you know, they're something, someone's paying for them. They see the, however you treat it, whether it's dilution through the shares, um, or actually putting it through the PL statement because there are some tax effects that you need to consider. Um, you know, and maybe some of that stuff does or doesn't hit the cash flow statement depending on you know how much my people have to pay for these shares sometimes. So obviously you can mm-hmm. cash in, but um, so you need all of them basically is is the, is the real answer. But I would always take the cash flow uh, because it's the cash flow that's going to decide whether a company needs money and when you get into tougher times, which uh, you know we, we may be getting into, I assume we're going to get into because you're starting to see the profit downgrades now. You know, for the for the young companies particularly, you know, you don't you don't want capital raisings if you can help it because that's what ruins the upside. Mm-hmm. And the business actually might be going fine, but you know, or or go great in the long term. But if it can't get through the short term without having to raise capital at, at really dilutionary prices, um, that's what you want to avoid. Mm. Yeah, that was the kind of the big debate, wasn't it? Like when the stock prices fall uh, and there's all these, you know, engineers, like mid-level engineers who are earning four or 500 grand a year to work at these tech companies uh, and they're being rewarded with that. Well, then what do they say? Do they say, well, we, we've got our stock and that's diluting, that's like permanent equity get being given away. Or do we just get paid more cash this year? You know, so like <laughs> both sides of that sort are pretty painful. 
That's that's right. Like so, if you so a lot of people are leaving those jobs now at those big tech companies because their shares and options are worthless. Mm. So you know they may not be getting paid that well, but they had this huge pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that's not there anymore. So so leave where they can actually get a real salary. So that's a massive new cost. It's going mm. coming into business. So everyone's sort of focused on inflation, um, and it's a nice broad term. But once you once you actually dig into the detail of what's actually going on in a real business, and when things like that change. You know these are massive issues and absolutely have a huge impact on your valuation. And and the other one I'd call out is, you know, I doubt there's ever been more use of, um, you know, crappy metrics like EBITDA. And um, you know there are occasions when it actually might be useful. Um, you know, won't dig into that today. I'm sure we can spare people the education, but um, you know, most of the time it's actually a, a rubbish number that people use because it suits them. Mm. And you know the only thing that matters really in the end is earnings per share growth. Mm. Uh, you know that's that's the, that's the truth, uh, mm. and, and I find it really frustrating that a lot of companies, and you see this far more overseas than you do here, but you still see it here, is that they just don't report the EPS lines. And like they'll give you five great numbers, and the EPS number's not there, mm. and there's a reason for that. You know because it's garbage. Mm. Um, you know, and I and I hate that because they they treat investors like they're idiots. And as soon as you see that, if you're actually an investor who actually has, you know, control of a large pot of money, like you're clued in to like look for these things. So it's not like they're hiding anything from the people that matter. It's it's like you're actually doing the opposite. As soon as I see things that are missing, I go, okay, I can't trust you. Mm. And it's really stupid because, you know, someone who's just starting their investment journey, they might not get that. You know, that's a lesson they'll learn at some other point the hard way. But they're not the ones investing a large amount of money or are going to decide what their share price is. Mm. So it, it just strikes me it's really dumb. Mm, good point. Um, last one of these quick ones is uh, what's one thing you've learned about investing in the past year? Uh, look, at my age, mate, you're only learning old lessons again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know I'm here to, to talk up our fund and, you know, our performance uh, in recent years has been fantastic. I it just it couldn't have been better if we tried and I, and I feel really lucky and privileged to to have had that because uh, I wasn't in control during the GFC, for example, and the portfolios in our business, you know, not that we were running, managing actual money back then, but just got absolutely smashed. So I'm extraordinarily grateful for our performance and don't take that lightly. We've been, you know, obviously you make your own luck, um, but we've been really fortunate to have some big winners in the resources sector. The coal stocks in particular um, have just been sensational and that's also why our ethical fund has been lagging lately because it just can't invest in those resources companies. But but the lesson is the lesson is that I'm just reminded of at the moment is just how hard investing is. Mm. You know, I think I just said before about you know valuations to me haven't really adjusted to what I think is going to be a tough economic environment. And the reporting season we've just went through over the last four weeks, in particular the last week and a half, that reminds me of what my first five years of investing was like. It was just you know, every good news was met by some bad news by another stock. So you had a lot more variability between results, uh, which is theoretically that's good for value investors because you should be able to, you know, it's a stock pickers market. So you can go and pick the good ones and stay away from the bad ones. But when you have a diversified portfolio of, you know, 25 stocks, uh, which we typically do, you know, two or three of those are going to be going terrible at any one time. Like it's, it's just unavoidable. Um, but even though you expect it, it's still painful going through it. Mm. Um, and then you get into these tough situations. Like we're in Star Entertainment. You know, I thought they'd probably raise $500 million at $2 a share. And here they are raising $800 million at $1.20 a share. So this property backing of $2 or maybe more per share that we'll sort of backed up our, you know, worst case scenario before, well, that dilution, you know, now that property is like $1.20 per share. Um, you know, so we really underestimated the size of, um, the capital raising and and possibly we shouldn't have because anytime you get a new CEO that comes in and is under pressure or has got a dodgy balance sheet, they're probably going to raise more than they need to because it, you know, it's no bother to them. They just want to start fresh and clean um, mm. and they're not an existing shareholder. So um, always follow the incentives, um, but that hasn't been much fun lately. Mm. No, there's quite a few lessons in there. Um, yeah, in particular, like the discussion around like maybe the results get worse before they get better, which is which is really important for people to be mindful of. Um, speaking of, so you mentioned at the outset there a discussion of whether you, you know, kind of you stick to the knitting and focus on like value stocks, quote unquote value stocks, or, you know, if you try and get into these higher quality companies and maybe weather the storm a bit and feel the, the punches uh, potentially on the way down. I'm curious, 
given that you've been looking at like turning over a lot of rocks, volatility's hit, global markets as well as ASX now. Um, I'm going to ask you for the highest quality company that you've come across. It doesn't necessarily need to be the best investment or something to buy. It's literally just a really high quality company that you might might have turned over recently. Yeah, so they're they're not necessarily new ones to me, but um, you know, two that are just still in, incredible businesses, um, two two duopolies basically. One is the the credit card companies in in Visa and Mastercard. You know, Mastercard is a three hundred and Eighty billion dollar, you know, US dollar business. So what's that? Five hundred fifty million mm. uh, billion Aussie, like just a massive company, and still growing earnings in the mid teens. Like it's just astounding. And and the reason it's such a good business is because it just doesn't have any real competitors. Um, you know, and anyone who thinks like a you know buy now pay later company has got, you know, is of any concern to these businesses. Uh, it's just ridiculous. You know, after pay, you know, it doesn't even make any money, yet alone produce the sort of numbers that this business does. Um, return on equity, um, which uh, really shows just you know how little capital this business needs to actually keep growing. Um, yeah, because essentially it's a toll road for the transactions. Mm. Right, like they've already built the network, so it's just all that cash drops to the bottom line so so quickly. But return on equity at the moment is one hundred forty five percent. So um, wow. So basically, that tells you, um, you know, I know it's getting a little bit complicated here, um, particularly for people who might be new to investing. But um, basically, that's telling you if you built the network today, um, your return on that investment in the first year would be one hundred and forty-five percent. So, mm. um, you know, obviously, that's why the the business trades at a high multiple. But um, you know, they're just phenomenal numbers that you just you can't find anywhere in Australia. Like the net profit margin is forty-five percent. Like, like, the, like it's just ridiculous. Um, the other one, the other duopoly too, which, um, you know, I, I didn't buy these shares uh, coming out of the GFC, even though they looked extremely cheap on the numbers, um, you know, and I, and I believed in every bit that they had this impregnable duopoly, but is the, um, basically the police of credit, uh, and that's Moody's and S&P. So if you want a loan, like a corporate loan, um, where you want to go and um, issue debt securities, you've got to get a sign off by one of these two companies. Like no one is going to buy you debt or lend you money unless you've got sign off from these businesses. Uh, there's a third one called Fitch, but it's nowhere near as big as these two. And so you've got to have that stamp of approval. You just have to have it. And those businesses, uh, the reason I didn't buy them, and funnily enough, the reason Buffett sold Moody's, I think he sold it like thirty dollars, and now it's three hundred bucks. Um, so it's cost him, I think, cost Berkshire like $2 billion, maybe $3 billion by now. Um, and he freely admits to making the mistake. Um, you know, those businesses are still rock solid and, st- and still growing. Um, maybe not quite at the rates um, at the moment as what the you know, Visa and MasterCard are. Um, but they're just absolutely impregnable businesses and their financials are just ridiculous. I, um, I think both of those duopolies are awesome to talk about because like the, the payments gateways, uh, payments networks, I should say, are uh, kind of the businesses where it's like it's like where people were talking about like Amazon and all of these big retail or like consumer facing tech companies over the last five years. Basically, the thing that's probably the most the biggest risk to them is like regulation because they're so profitable. So they have to basically try and keep their head down as much as possible um, and just play within within the law. And like I mean, we saw. Amazon actually tried to go head to head with Visa for a bit there. And I don't know, but I feel like, I don't know who won that, but I feel like Visa kind of just maybe shrugged it off a little bit. Uh, and then with Moody's and S&P, I was actually watching the big short the other day. So uh, that's fresh in my mind. But even in, if you think about that movie, the big short, they basically did everything wrong that they could have done and they still survived, you know? So like they, they basically said, Yes, we're the we're the gatekeepers, like the the guard dogs. I think you said, uh, and they were like they were biting the hand that fed them, and yet they still are hanging around and bigger and better than ever. There was, there was very little justice that came out of the GFC. I think that was one of the worst things that that came out of it. There's, um, you know, you could say that about life generally at the moment. I think just the, the world just seems to be such a chaotic place. We've given our particularly U.S. politics is these days. Um, you know, this doesn't seem to be a lot of justice going around for people that are doing the wrong thing. And uh, in, at least in finance circles, like that was one of the, the worst periods I felt just to for the government and regulators to really show the people that these people were going to be accountable. Mm. Uh, you know, and the fines, uh, I, I I actually can't remember the numbers, but I, I think maybe Moody's paid $5 billion or something, or at least that's a number I 
have in my head that was getting touted around, but you know, it's a monstrous company and it's so profitable. You know, who cares about $5 billion? Just get on with the job. Mm, absolutely. Um, no, so we're chatting now because um, InvestSmart and Intelligent Investor are launching the Intelligent Investor Select Share Fund. And um, you're obviously overseeing that all. And uh, special mention is important here that um, InvestSmart is a long-term sponsor of the Australian Investors Podcast. So for full disclosure, long-term sponsor, been on the, the books for a long time. Um, but I'm just curious, like we first met in a long time ago when you were at a different fund, um, like you were- you took you were an intelligent investor, went and worked at a global fund, and had been back an intelligent investor for quite some time now. Uh, and during that stint, I met you, and you talked about heaps of really interesting companies, uh, and that was a global focused fund. So I'm curious, why now? Uh, why are you looking to launch the fund now? Is it the market's volatile? Is there opportunity overseas? Like, just kind of let's just start there. Yeah, so I've wanted to launch this fund for about 10 years. Um, <laughs> I started investing overseas in 2007, um, which was, you know, it was the GFC basically once mm. the share price started coming down. And and I, I certainly didn't make the most of the, of the opportunity. And, um, you know, we could certainly make fun of me in that regard later on. But uh, we'll focus on the fund today. The, um, the opportunities, like I don't expect to ever see opportunities like that ever again. In my lifetime, yeah, you know, I haven't actually looked where the Nasdaq peaked, but um, my guess is from top to, uh, bottom to top, you know, from the bottom of the GFC to whatever the peak was, you know, in months ago, um, you know, you, you're probably ten or twelve times your money. I'm guessing or something like that. Um, so, so that was for buying an index. Mm. So, so the thing is, you know, when I say international, like our fund and my experience is is really more pitched towards the US. It's just the best place to run a business, and if you're looking for the next CSL, that's where you're going to find it. You know, we'll own some some stocks, you know, elsewhere, and we might talk about one of those, a couple of those shortly. But just the best, you know, these incredible businesses, they just they're either in America or they're listed on the U.S. exchanges, and so that's part of it. So the second part of it is if there's a couple of investors I respect, and um, now I won't name them. Um, just because of what I'm about to say here, but um, when you look in their stable, by far and away, the best performing fund, and it's not even a contest, is the funds that have international and local stocks in it. So they just pick the best of both. Because obviously there's an advantage we have in Australia because we're just so close to the stocks. So there's always mm. half a dozen ideas we're always really excited about. Uh, and the research shows that actually the top 10 stock picks of of most uh, of funds on average actually perform really well. The reason most funds underperform is because those fund managers are told that they need to diversify, so they have to own another 50, 60 socks. And obviously, those 50 or 60 socks aren't going to be great ideas. So that's mm. why that's why most funds underperform. That's why I tend to find for our funds that 20 to 25 is um, that sort of right balance between not having too much invested in one stock, um, but also making sure that you know our top 10 winners actually make a difference over time. Um, it's funny, I, I digress here. You like to bring me back on track, but um, we've got these great numbers, you know, particularly recently on some of our funds. And I realized almost that you could have just bought an ETF and then followed our energy investments recently, you know, coal stocks, and you would have done just as well. And I thought about how many decisions, like probably 10,000 decisions, have gone into these returns, trying so hard for that 3% of our performance. Like it's just so hard, and you never know where it's going to come from. But the best performing funds in these stables are the ones where you can just pick the best of both. Mm. Um, so, so I wanted to do that, and um, I, I just haven't been in the situation before because the problem is with our business is most people will be familiar with Intelligent Investor, the subscription service, or the newsletter as we called it in the old days. And so, every stock we cover in our uh, we buy in our funds has to be covered in the newsletter. So that's the rule. So that keeps it nice and open and transparent, so we can't hide anything in the funds. And so if we're going to recommend 20 new stocks, 20 international stocks and cover a heap more and be looking for new ones all the time and be selling some and buying new ones, like that's a full-time job on, on its own. And I'm already running, you know, responsible for three funds. So I just don't have the time to do that in the newsletter. So I just, I, I couldn't do it. Um, but we hired a guy who can, um, and he has international experience. His name's Nick Cummings. Um, and, and he's been terrific, perfect fit for our culture. Uh, really good young guy, young compared to me anyway. And uh, it's, it's not the honey badger, um, <laughs> play soccer. Um, but he's been working on that as well as coming up with some Aussie stock ideas. So he's been a great addition to the team. 
So the fact that he can write the articles and um, you know, and we can focus on the ideas for the funds has given us the resources that we've never had before. Um, you know, it's taken a bit of turnover of staff to get the right team together. Um, it's taken a long time, so I just, um, you know, I don't want to waste it. I, I just want to get this fund away, get the international coverage going. Mm. And I think there's, there's probably a few other reasons, but I think one of the other ones too is we always have this argument in the subscription business about our spec buyers. You know, our performance in spec buyers is atrocious. The performance of our average buy recommendation is like 15 return annualized. Um, but the people love them. You know, they don't, most people, or a lot of people, don't want to read a newsletter where it's just the same boring stocks they've been reading about all the time. So they want something to, to put a little bit in. But those stocks, have t- they tend to work out poorly because they're rubbish. Mm. Um, you know, but, but people know that going in. So it's not, you know, we're not hiding the fact. We're just saying, look, if this works out, you're going to make a lot of money, but obviously it's risky. Um, now, my view is that we should be replacing that coverage with some really high quality, great businesses listed overseas, and people can actually put meaningful amounts of their uh, portfolios into those stocks and feel very confident about owning them for the next 20 years. And I think that's the, you know, I think more people, you know, again, why, why now? I, th- I think finally people in Australia are waking up to the opportunities overseas. And I think that's partly because they're using more of those overseas services. So, Every day, I'm sure almost everyone uses Google or Apple, mm. uh, and they've seen how great these businesses are. They they understand them. You know, they're relatively easy to understand these businesses. Obviously, if you get into the back end of how Google's technology works, it gets complicated. But essentially, you know what the output is, and or what the service is, and how they make their money. So people have seen this. They're coming into. Um, they use these services more and more. Everyone's got a Mastercard or Visa card. I say everyone. You know, most oldies that have that are big investors have probably got one. They probably got four. Um, you know, and I think people have also starting to realise that you know ANZ share price is at the same level today as it was in two thousand and six. Mm. And we talked off air about National Australia Bank and what a good job Ross McEwen's done. Well, before Ross McEwen got here. The share price of NAB was at the same price it was when I got a share purchase price uh, SPP offer um, in mm-hmm. 1999 when I was um, a teenager. You know that's extraordinary, and yet the banks, you know, people talk about how great these banks are. Well, they were good for a period of time, yet despite the most incredible credit and house boom we've ever seen, their share prices have gone nowhere in two decades. You know, I, I just find that astounding. Just personally, I, I don't understand what doesn't get talked about more often, but the point is, there's just been no capital gain. So you've got a bit of a dividend and some franking credits. So that's great. But in the meantime, you've missed out on owning MasterCard that's gone up 10, 15 fold. Or, you know, it actually listed, believe it or not, I think at like $4.50 in 2006. Oh, wow. Now, now, I don't know where I was, but the share price now is nearly $400. So it's basically a hundred bagger uh, <laughs> for a business that was well understood about how good it was. You know, and then you got a second crack at it during the GFC at I think something like $6 or something. So these are the sort of opportunities that are overseas, and you don't have to take big risks. And if there was um, anything I wanted to get out of this fund and and the new international coverage in the subscription service, I would just love it if all these people who have thought about investing overseas for a long time and been too afraid to do it, um, you know, or have never really thought about it before, mm-hmm. you know, took their first step with us because they've seen that it's actually safe. You know, these are better businesses. Theoretically, it should be lower risk than our. Australian funds because it's not made up of a bunch of iron ore miners and bank stocks. Mm. So, so, so that, that's a sales pitch. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So the 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 global fund will also include some Aussie stocks as well, right? So you'd be able to pick the best of Australia and put that with the best of overseas. Yeah, the the main uh, part of the Aussie that I I really wanted included is all our funds are uh, actively managed listed ETFs. So for people who might not know what that means, it basically means that you can buy our portfolio of stocks on the market as though you're buying um, you know, an individual share. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's like that's tremendous to me just to be able to do that because it's low cost. Um, the, the fund trades at net asset value. So there's, it's not like a listed investment company where it's going to trade at a premium or discount or anything like that. Uh, and it's just a really great – and you, know, you don't have to fill out all these forms. You know, mm. that's the other huge bonus. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to invest in a mm. fund, you had a stack of 20 pages you had to fill out, and it was a real pain, and mailed in and all the rest of that nonsense. Um, so that's what's great about it. Mm. Um, but I just want – this isn't going to be a fund where, um, you know, it's got a whole bunch of Chinese stocks that you've never heard of uh, where the CEO is going to go missing. 
um, you know, or the government decides, you know, we don't want this company to be the, the champion anymore. We're going to make this company the champion. Like, it's not that fund. You know, this is the fund that I think can outperform just by sticking to our knitting, um, as we always have with Intelligent Investor, which is just focusing on quality. And when you get that chance to buy something really cheaply, you, you really make sure you nail it. Mm. I um I had one question which I sent to you in advance, which you thought was good. So I'm I'm curious to know what your response is to this, which is do you think it's an advantage that Australian investors were awake basically when the US market is closed? Like is that an advantage or disadvantage? So I'll tell you about a personal experience why it's a disadvantage. Um, okay. so I didn't actually answer your question directly before. Um, the reason I wanted some Aussie stocks in there particularly was um, with our uh, listed ETF funds, there's strict liquidity limits on it um, in regards uh, to small okay. caps. Um, now, that comes from the ASX listing rules. Uh, so we only have a limited room for stocks um, with market caps under $500 million. And so, But we own three or four really, I think, are exciting small caps. Uh, and I really want to include them because if they're, you know, the next CSL over the next 10 or 15 years, you know, they'll drive all the outperformance of the fund on their own, regardless of what the other 15 stocks, 20, 20 stocks do. Mm. Um, you know, and again, that's just, that's our example of that benefit of being able to take the best from home and abroad. Um, the other thing I like about the fund too is a small cap in America is US $5 billion or less, mm. which which is laughable because that's like, you know, it's about $8 billion in Australia. Now, if you're talking about $8 billion stock in Australia, you're talking about a very well entrenched business with lots of growth in front of it. Mm. So so people sort of worry about whether it's you know more competitive and what are you going to bring to the table? Well, actually, I think the Australian is the most picked over market um, that there is in the world. It's the, it's the hardest market because there's just so many investors, so many people following the market. Um, mm. Compared to how many good stocks there are, so um, you know it's not about having more information than anyone these days. Um, you know, I told a guy yesterday. He said, "Well, you know, what do you know about overseas stocks that someone else over there doesn't?" I said, "Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I, we don't know anything more about Australian stocks than anyone else either." Mm. Uh, and, and that's worked out all right. Um, <laughs> just finally, getting to your question, which I'm glad I remembered, is an advantage or disadvantage to be asleep while the markets are open overseas? Well. And there was a small cap I just couldn't get out of once a long time ago. And I woke up to a $450 brokerage bill, which I was fuming at. Um, so that was a disadvantage. Uh, but in terms of, you know, the stocks that we're going to buy, I actually think it's an advantage because I don't really want to be trading this portfolio. I, I really, my aim here is to pick pick well once, buy well once, and just let the portfolio do do its thing for the next 10 years. There's this astounding, I think it's astounding anyway, um, statistics that I've, I've seen more recently come out said basically all the value ever created in the entire history of the US market has come from 4% of the companies. Mm-hmm. And and actually most of that has just come from an even much smaller group than that, um, you know, which makes sense when you've got, you know, dominant companies like Google's and Apple's and, you know, Berkshire and all, all that sort of stuff. But it just tells you that very few businesses actually do well over long periods of time, you know, yet alone actually make money at the moment. So this is all about quality and not quantity. Mm. How do you, um, because the opportunity set's so big, how do you filter companies? Like do you use screening tools or whatever? Yeah. So in my old job, we used to have screens and used to spend a lot of time on that. And then I just realized over time, you know, partly just through experience, you know, I've been into investing overseas for so long now, you tend to know what most of the big companies are anyway. Um, most of my screening probably really is focused on the smaller end of the market where um, there's a couple of good websites where uh, you can read all the quarterly letters from all the fund managers. And the, you know, I tend to look at the smaller ones because I just find them more interesting personally. Um, but that's that's basically my screening tool. Um, mm. so, so, so that's, um, uh, was it Phil Fisher that wrote um, Uncommon Stocks and Common Profits, Uncommon Stocks or vice versa? Yep. Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits. And uh and that's all he did. He said, I, I didn't have any original ideas. I just read other people's ideas and just decided whether I'd followed them or not. Um, and there's so many stocks out there. Like it just it just works nicely. It just gives you a quick head start because I know what I want in the stocks. You know, we're so picky about what we want in our companies for this fund, particularly that, you know, we're not going to go and explore 1,500 companies. We just don't need to. You know, we know what the good companies are. And the best thing is most of those companies are down by a lot at the moment. So, um, the market itself mm. in the US might not be especially cheap, um, but but there are lots of ideas that I think can do far better than a lot of the businesses that people own in Australia. You, mm. you know, like Woolworths is a classic, like it's trading at 21 times earnings or something. I think it actually was higher than that. 
Mm. And I don't know what growth you expect to make from that business over the next 10 years, but bugger all is my guess. Um, you know, for 21 times earnings, you can buy some sensational businesses overseas that are growing at 10% plus. You know, extraordinary business, far better than Woolworths. Mm. Um, you know, so that that's what we're really trying to replace. We're trying to find more CSLs and less supermarkets and less banks and less iron ore miners. I um I really like that wide reading as a kind of like a screen. And I think, you know, it's very common when we see fund managers, they, they have like a like this funnel in their slide deck. They'll show like this is the universe. And then they have like, we look at these three factors, I don't know, growth value and something else, quality. So uh, and then there'll be like four little metrics underneath that, that it goes through some sort of screening like cap IQ or Bloomberg or something, and then it outputs the companies. But I find that that doesn't do justice to some of the types of companies that I'm guessing you're looking for. Um, the businesses that are qualitatively speaking, just so much higher quality than all the others. So like you mentioned Moody's, S&P, Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. Like that's a really, I, I find that once you get to a certain level in your investing, that that type of filtering that you're doing is the gold standard. It's just consume as much information as I can, knowing all the what I know already, and then I make a judgment qualitatively as much as quantitatively, like as qualitatively. And I think that's kind of like, for me at least, that's the gold standard. That's what I want to hear. So, you know, most people would know that portfolio managers get paid very well for what they do. Um, not so much at Investmark, but other portfolio managers <laughs> at bigger houses. Um, but there's a reason for that. And and the reason is is the experience. Now, a lot of people are worried about AI, for example, taking over portfolio managers' roles and saying they can pick stocks better. Um, now, I, I don't think that will be the case. There's definitely a role for data collection or whatever, but um, you know that, that you, you can't buy that experience. And I think investing is still one of those areas where experience means more than anything else. Mm. So when you've been doing it for a long time, you know it's that experience that you know is why investment pays my salary. Is you know I've been doing this for two since 2006. You know, I know all the Australian companies. Like, it's very rare I discover a new high-quality business in Australia. It just doesn't happen very often. Um, you know, in the states, I've been investing since two thousand and seven. So, you know, to, you know, not, and I did it three year, for three years professionally, all day, every day, weekends, nights. And um, like the amount of hours I've done investing is not your standard average weekly. You know, mm. forty hours. Like, I remember the first five years at Intelligent Investor. Like, I, I worked seven days a week. You know, and nights and actually nearly done my marriage in there at one point. Um, I mean that seriously, like it was ridiculous. Um, but I just wanted to be the best possible investor I could be. And that's why I actually started looking at overseas stocks fairly early in my career because I just wanted to be the best analyst I could be. And and to be the best analyst and investor, you need to look at as many different business models as you can to understand what what makes them great and what makes the lousy ones. Mm. And unfortunately, I haven't you know made the most of my own recommendations to people over time. Uh, my own portfolio has been too esoteric and I've just swapped and changed and all sorts of things. So, you know, part of what makes me a good inv professional investor is the fact I've made every mistake in the book, <laughs> you know, probably more than once. Um, but I, I just think the the room for error when you stick to that quality is much lower. And the results you tend to get over when you really look long term over 10 and 20 years, the results are so much better if for no other reason than just the turnover of your portfolio is low and you're not paying taxes all the time. Um, you know, like I got absolutely shafted last year where I swapped my portfolio into a family trust, which I should have done at least a year earlier, even probably longer. Um, and I paid this massive tax bill because of where stocks were at the time. Um, you know, and then since then the share price had tanked, and like I'm just <laughs> so annoyed. But the taxes I've paid over over the years just from swapping and changing all the time because I just mm -hmm. didn't sit pretty with the great stocks I own has cost me a fortune. And and I and you know Warren Buffett. You know, and many others have been trying to tell you this for 30, 40 years, but until you've actually lived it. Um, now, obviously, there's a little bit of bias because the share market has been so strong over the last 10 years with interest rates going to zero and the stocks that have done the best have been by far and away the, the quality high growth companies. So you need to be careful and you can't obviously expect MasterCard to give you 30% returns from here when you're starting with a low 30s PER. Um but um, but it's just the quality and the compounding over really long timeframes and makes all the difference. And as Charlie Munger says, even if you pay a bit of a discount or even if you overpay for a stock, your long-term return is basically going to be whatever the return on equity of the business is if you own it long enough. Mm. That's just one of those pieces of wisdom that you, it takes a long time to learn. But once you actually really appreciate what it means, 
Um, and as Warren Buffett said in his annual letter, yes, I was reading yesterday, it helps to live to get 90. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, I've got one final question on the fund before uh, before we move on to two companies, which we might do a brief overview of, uh, is global funds, um, when people look at them, they often talk about like risk management. So whether it's like hedging currencies or constraints on portfolios or something like that. Uh, how do you think about that? Like, do you think about like there particular things you do at the the, the the company level or at the portfolio level? Do you hedge? Do you not hedge? Yeah, the the big change, um, and it's not a massive change, but the the big difference compared to our existing Australian only funds, uh, which tend to run with twenty to twenty five stocks, and obviously those last five stocks are pretty small positions that you know might be trading in or out of a stock. Um, or maybe something that's a bit speculative and you just want to sort of put one or two percent in it and um, to see how the investment case develops. Um, you know, this fund will probably have more like 30 stocks or um, low 30s in it. And the reason is because one is because we've got so many ideas. Uh, um, but the other reason is we can put in those additional, say, let's call it 10 extra stocks without actually impacting the potential return of the portfolio. So in effect, what we're doing is at the very least, we think we're maintaining our return expectations. Um, you know, my personal aims are always, because we don't manage a lot of money, um, you know, 2% 2, 2 outperformance after fees is a pass, um, but I'm always aiming for two to four. Um, personally, now, you know, I'm not promising that and maybe I can't do it, but we've been able to do it in our other funds. So I don't see what, don't see why we can't do it with a fund that's actually got more opportunities than the others and mm. aren't constrained by the fact that they're income funds or an ethical fund, which is really hard to manage. And it's really hard to outperform with those funds. Um, you know, even though track record says otherwise, um, sort of lost my train of thinking. Um, but that's probably oh, sorry. That's the major difference. It's just more stocks. Yeah. Um, nothing else will be any different. So it'll be slightly less concentrated. Um, but again, just much higher quality businesses. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that, um, mate. So funny story. Uh, when I first met you, and I met um, Wayne from Peters McGregor. I remember hearing about uh, ING and I banked with ING, the, the the bank, like I have the orange app on my phone right now. And uh, I was like, oh, this is really interesting because it's a company that I bank with and I like I, I see other people using. I think the Barefoot Investor talked about it in his books and all this sort of stuff. And you guys were talking about it as an investment. I was like, huh, didn't know you could invest in it because I knew it wasn't an Australian bank. Um, but this is one of the banks like all these years later that um, you wanted to talk about on the show. So maybe if we st start with that, like for those people will be familiar with ING because they'll see like the, the orange line or whatever is the logo. Um, but what makes a bit, the, this bank interesting, say, versus NAB or ComBank or something like that? So it's somewhat ironic that I'm talking about banks because I was the bank analyst back in my old job at Peters McGregor. And I spent a lot of time with the banks and it was sort of, a decent time to be looking at them because they were all belted up after the mm. GT, but it was tough going. Um, you know, a lot of them had government interference, interest rates were zero, so profit margins were getting crunched. And um, in some cases, we didn't make the money that I'd, I'd hoped. Um, now, ING was one of the banks that we owned. And the reason I liked it was because it was a you know, relatively clean compared to almost all other banks that had major issues. ING got completely cleaned up during the GSC, like all the other European and American banks. And it had a, a government bailout. And, and a guy who came in there, his name was Ralph Hamers. Uh, he's actually left recently and um, become the, the chief of UBS, so much bigger investment bank. Um, he's been replaced by um, his offsider. I'm not sure if I pronounce his name right, but Stephen Van Rizik, I think is how you pronounce it. It's a few J's in there, as you expect with the Nordic names. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but I like the internal appointment, but it was really Ralph Hamers that did the real hard work with his business because, you know, I talked about Brian Moynihan earlier. It was really tough getting these businesses out from the government ownerships, paying off all these fines while your profit margins were getting smashed. All the while, you're trying to deal with this huge influx of bad debts. Um, you know, and the economy was pretty rotten too for a long time, particularly in Europe. So ING Bank is, it's in the Benelux region, which is a wealthy region of Europe. So that's uh, Belgium and Luxembourg. That's its sort of main home, but it's actually more of a global bank than that. Mm. And you know, the reason you know it in Australia, it, um, I'm not sure if it still is, but it used to be Australia's fifth largest lender, believe it or not, oh, um, huh. behind the four big banks. So that shows you how powerful, because we probably all remember the ads, you used to see the ads on TV all the time. 
and they sold a lot of mortgages and they were really one of the first to really maximize online banking. And, and people loved it. It was simple. You got a better interest rate and it showed a really forward-looking bank. And here we are all these years later and the investment case that I was making back in 2015 is basically still the same investment case I'm making in 2023. Um, but you know the share price really hasn't done a lot um, since then. So it's been almost dead money, except for your dividend, probably a small gain, capital gain on there. But um, but the reason why I think now's the time, finally, not not just for ING Bank, but for a lot of the European banks, is that their share prices are just so low, yet the fundamentals have improved immensely. So, so I, it's actually ING Group is the actual name, ING Bank, as, as far as the listed name is concerned. And the business at the moment trades at eight times earnings. It's got a 6.5% dividend yield. Um, its return on equity, uh, the CEO is aiming for 12 to 13% by 2025, so it's only a couple of years away. Now, that's consistent with Commonwealth Bank that trades on about 18 or 19 times earnings. Um, I don't know what the dividend yield is at the moment. Was it maybe three, three and a half or something? You know, yes, you get some franking credits, but, you know, they're not huge on that sort of dividend yield. Um, you know, and it's probably the most expensive bank in the world at the moment. And the growth coming from Australian banks over the next decade will be minimal. Um, and also, you've actually got more competition in the Australian market which is why their profit margins are still under pressure even though interest rates are going up. And this is the big difference between a lot of the European and UK banks compared to Australian banks is that in those foreign country countries, they have a lot more zero deposit accounts. So when interest rates go up by 1% in Europe, for example, and remember that the official interest rate in Europe for the best part of the last decade or more has been negative 0.4% and negative so the bank's paying, for, you know, um, when it should be earning. Uh, you know, it's just a terrible situation to be in. So the profit margins have been smashed. So now, finally, interest rates are going up. And for every 1% increase in the official interest rate in Europe, that's basically equivalent of 20% increase in profits for ING. So they're getting all that margin. So, you know, you see a lot of people talking in the AFR about how the banks are being stingy in Australia by not quickly passing on the increase in interest rates to depositors. Um, you know they're not, but they they have to eventually. Uh, otherwise, they lose the depositors. So so they don't get to keep all that margin. You know they they really just um, keep essentially just sort of keep maintain the di the difference between their lending rates and their deposit rates. That's not the case for these banks. So here you are. You've got this bank trading at you know very low um, metrics, where I think there's a potentially a fifty percent capital gain here over the next couple of years. Um, whereas I look at the Australian banks and I think like you may actually lose money over the next couple of years. So, so to me, it's just chalk and cheese, but you know, people say, you know, most people aren't going to sell their Australian banks to buy this. Uh, you know, I know that, but this is just a far better opportunity to me where there are big capital, cap like we could earn 20 to 30% annualized returns here um, for, for the next little while. You know, mm. the Aussie banks are, are not going to do that. If anything, they're going down. So I just think it's chalk and cheese and the bank is clean. And it's a familiar bank to Australians. You know, the government doesn't own any shares. There's no more fines. The bad debts are gone. You know, it, it had its come up. It's during the GFC. The balance sheet's been tested. This is just a nice, clean, simple banking story. Um, and that, that's the investment case. I was reading something, Nathan. I don't know if this is still a thing or even if you know about this right now. But what I remember because the, the Eurozone obviously got pretty crunched during the GFC, I think in... Um, the Netherlands, there was a thing where if there was a defaulting loan, the government could or would effectively make, like the, the loan would transfer to the government. I don't know if, am I making that up? Uh, no, that was definitely something was talked about. That was sort of um, like the government was talking about having bad banks. Um, now, I'm not sure, I can't actually remember whether they did that in Europe or not, um, but that was one of the big plans in America there at one point. But effectively, what they did was they just, you know, with things like TARP, people might, you know, I can't remember, something relief program, mm -hmm. um, something asset relief program, you know, $700 billion, which everyone just absolutely eyeballs popped out of their head back then. And now we just laugh at trivial amounts like $700 billion. <laughs> um, but basically what they did, you know, the government's just, you know, particularly in the UK and Europe, they either took shares in the company. Um, so that's what happened at like Royal Bank of Scotland had this massive overhang of government shares. Um, you know, or they just provided cash. Um, but, you know, the, the banks paid for it with fines and all sorts of other stuff. So, mm. um, you know, but all that's behind it. And yet the, 
Now, I think the problem, you know, the problem that people see with the banks now in Europe is just the bad economy. Uh, but but I think when you've got a six and a half percent six and a half percent dividend yield that could increase um, maybe quickly if interest rates keep going up, and and I just don't think you're going to have the bad debt problems with ING just because it's in the rich parts of Europe, it's in the north part of Europe, it's not in the south where all the problems are. Mm. Um, you know, it's just a nice clean story. Interestingly, um, it is. I think people tend to underestimate how dominant ING is in in the Netherlands and even in Germany, where it's pretty a competitive market. How strong the bank is it's it's almost like it's a much more i guess consolidated market than it is here in australia where we've got four major players plus macquarie like ing actually dominates like truly dominates the market i just really like it's a bit forward thinking like you know and the problem with the situation you just described is because we've only had four major banks there's just no pressure on them whatsoever to do anything cool you know, they, they don't have to go and spend a lot of money to create new services. When you're in a more competitive market like Europe or the UK, you need to do those things if you want new customers or you want to hang on to them. So you have to invest and you have to build and you have to create. And that's the problem with oligopolies and monopolies is there's just no incentive to do that, which is the worst thing for customers. And that's why ING has been successful. You know, they really were one of the first, if not you know, the first major bank, particularly in Australia, to push that online banking and people just loved it, you know, because the costs are lower for the bank, so they can offer the higher interest rates for depositors. Um, you know, like it was just a superior business model, um, you know, and the Aussie banks must have hated it, um, mm-hmm. but you didn't really see them respond to it, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're all sort of online banking these days, but um, it's not like they rushed towards it or made these great new investments. Like everyone still hates dealing with their banks today, I think. Mm, true. Um, so that's ING Group, uh, groups, but with G R O E P, um, the Dutch company. So uh, I've been, I followed the company on and off for years, uh, basically since you mentioned it all those years ago. And I still bank with them today. So um, yeah, really interesting yeah. business. And uh, us too. Yeah. Uh, so great stuff. Um, the next business is a business that I know of, but I am not familiar with at all, Nathan, which is uh, Universal. So I, I'm like an absolute beginner to this business. I was researching and reading about it this morning and I was still trying to think, like, can you just give us like the 101 of Universal Music Group and what makes it interesting? Yeah, so Universal Group, uh, I think, was a spin-off out of Vivendi, which um, uh, some investors might have heard of Vivendi before. So it was a big European conglomerate. And um, Universal Music is being led by a guy, and I, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, but Lucian Grange, Lucian Lucian. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a company stalwart. He, he's been there since the 90s and took over the chief job in 2010. The story basically is that, you know, most people will remember Napster. And uh, this was a situation where you had, you know, the, the birth of the internet, really. And it was illegal download, downloading of music. So music revenues across the industry absolutely crashed because you didn't have to buy CDs anymore. Um, you could just pirate it, get it online for nothing. Um, yeah, and the and the drummer at Metallica, Lars Ulrich, sort of got castigated in the media for being greedy, um, but he came out and he was really, he really led the campaign to say, you know, one, this is illegal, but two, you're going to kill the industry because, you know, I, I don't know what his exact words are. It wasn't really going to matter that much to Metallica, but um, but for up and coming people that really relied on getting funding and signing record deals, like it was going to kill them. You know, mm. there's just no money for them at all. So. It was really, uh, you know, it was great for people who wanted to not pay anything for their music, but it was really an mm. awful situation. So um, so what Grange did was he basically said, look, we need to do this properly and we're going to pay for all these catalogs. We're going to pay these recording artists for their music, um, you know, and we're going to distribute that through or do deals with companies like Spotify. And so Universal Music is uh, is it's the number one player. It you know, basically has the most songs, if you like, the most artists on its label. On its different labels, and and then it does deals with Spotify. So it's basically a toll road for music. So every time you play a song for, I think it's more than thirty seconds on Spotify, uh, Universal gets a clip. And so what you've had in you know recent years is basically a massive land grab. You know to buy the Beatles soundtracks, to buy Prince, to buy Justin Bieber is probably the latest one. You know, so once you've got these, it's a massive upfront payment in the same way that if you're going to build a toll road. It's very expensive to build it in the first place, but once it's built, you know it's it's all gravy. You know it's not it's not like Universal has to maintain anything. Like it's it's basically cost nothing to stream a song, so they get a tiny clip every time a song gets played, 
And now what you're seeing is the margins for this business are just expanding rapidly and have been expanding rapidly. And you've now got this, you know, genuine profit center of streaming. Um, more broadly, it's a, it's a bit of a furphy. You need to be careful with this, but the growth in the business, you know, this is a business that trades. Um, and we think we can own this in the next couple of years um, at around 20 times earnings, which for a business that can grow in the teens or grow profits in the teens for what we think for quite a while to come, um, you know, it would be a, a great, great situation. You know, I think it's trades at like, you know, 27 times earnings today or something. Um, but it trades at a bit of a discount, interestingly, to Warner. Uh, I think this is just sort of the European discount that you often see with European listed stocks. Uh, Warner is the number two, I think, um, and Sony, I might have them the wrong way around. Um, but the, basically the three of them represent 70% of all revenues from music streaming. Mm. Um, so it's, it's essentially it's an oligopoly. And obviously if you're a new artist and you want to sign up with someone and have the best chance of being seen around the world, you know, you're going to go with these guys. And and the CEO of Universal is widely regarded as as the best operator um, Bono, the lead singer of U2, had some funny thing to, to say about him. He, he basically said he was a complete mofo, but um, but he had had a great ear. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it tells you he's like a ruthless operator, um, and that's why the the financial statistics have been you know so tremendous. So revenues doubled over the last five years or something due to streaming. So it, it, um, in in this environment, what I think makes this stock particularly valuable is that for most businesses in this inflationary environment with interest rates going up, their margins are going to get crushed. So and that that's the biggest danger at the moment, I think, in the market generally, is you're buying a lot of high-growth stocks. You know, Domino mm-hmm. was your classic. Last week, it was a 4% fall in sales and a 20% fall in net profit. You know, that's that, you know, sorry to use a jargon term, but that's the operating leverage working against you. And they failed the profit, the, the price increase test. Um, you know, they, they put up their price to protect franchiser profits and and customers bought. They didn't want to pay the higher prices. Um, where Universal's not in that situation. This is a business where having spent all this money on all these catalogs, now, you know, the, the rest of the money essentially is just cream. So this is a business where we expect margins to go up and take care of that sort of 27 times price to earnings ratio. Bring that, it'll bring that down pretty quickly. So I... Would then would you what would you say then are the risks to the business then what like you, the chief like front of mind risks that you think about? Yeah, there's a few. Um, sorry, the fair fee I was going to talk about, which I didn't mention, was twenty yeah. percent um, only. Well, only twenty percent of all people with a mobile phone have got a streaming subscription, but it's a little bit of a fair fee because in the developed nations, it's more like a third of people, and then across you know Asia, for example, like in China, it's only six percent. Um, you know, you can argue about how interested they're, they're going to be in Western music, but, um, but but you know, in other parts of the world, it's really, really low. So that's, that's the opportunity. Um, the other opportunity is also just in America, and, and this is a trend for a lot of companies that's going to benefit a lot of companies, not just streaming, but the current population cohort of uh, 20, 25-year-olds to 42-year-olds in America, that sort of chief spending and family starting ages is the biggest population cohort uh, that America has ever seen, um, which is quite mm. remarkable, really. Mm. And so you're going to have a lot more young people that are going to be streamers. So you've got that sort of natural tailwind behind mm. it. In terms of risk, it's really if um, you know people stop st- streaming as much, or you know, there's just less people streaming. You know, maybe there's another service. It'd be, be, be pretty tough. Like you own one third of the world's music, so it's pretty tough to compete against. Uh, mm. Pricing is, is always an issue. You know, I, I couldn't do without Spotify. Like, I'll, I'll happily do without Netflix. I don't really watch much of that. Um, you know, young fellow watches Star Wars on Disney and things, so I'm sort of stuck with that. Mm-hmm. But um, but there's no way I'm doing it with Spotify. I love it. Like, I live on there. And, and 95% of what I listen to is Metallica. So I'm not getting rid of that. They charge me $19 a month, and I couldn't care less. But but there is some point where too much. It's, it's too much. And maybe if they start charging $29.99, you know, a lot of people actually say, look, that's just too high and I don't like music that much or or I'll just go to another another service that doesn't charge me as much and maybe they don't download as much. Um, you know, and then obviously you've always got to um the cost for universal can be large. Um, you know, distribution costs um can be large at, at times if you want to sign up new artists, you never know whether you're gonna get a return um on that artist and you can spend a lot of money pushing them and not get anywhere. Mm. Uh, and maybe when you renew some of these deals with artists who you didn't have to pay much for at the beginning. Now they become, you know, things work out really great, uh, and now you have to pay them ten times as much. 
And um, so, so that co- so the costs are, can be really lumpy for this business. You know, they can be pretty sort of mild one year, and then you buy an enormous catalog for three hundred million dollars, and um, you know you wear that. But um, credit to the company, they tend to put that straight through the PL rather than um, depreciate those sort of things over time generally, which makes the earnings possibly look better than what they actually are. Mm. I see that Justin Bieber, you mentioned him before, sold his catalog for two hundred million. Um, so that's to give people a sense of like what's what goes into these things, um, which is pretty, yeah, pretty big. like you talk about protective moats. You know, if you're going to compete against one of these three guys, uh, and there are a couple of other smaller competitors, if you're going to compete against them, well, that's the sort of money you need to be spending. So, are you really going to be able to get a return on your investment when you buy one of these catalogs? Because mm-hmm. think of all the infrastructure you've got to build. Um, and all the people you've got to hire and all the relationships you've got to develop. Mm. Like, like you just can't replicate that and it's just impossible. Mm. Not not impossible, but you're not going to get a return on your money by doing it. Mm. Hey, mate, we're recording this on the 1st of March, 2023. Um, the, so everyone that uh, is an Intelligent Investor subscriber, and there's a link in the show notes for this, everyone that's an Intelligent Investor subscriber automatically will get research for like global research when that rolls off over the next few months for the companies that you talk about. But then they obviously people can start to invest in the fund as soon as it launches. When When's the indicative launch of the fund? And I guess the second question is like, I'll put a link. There's a You did an update not too long ago on what's going on uh, on the website. So there's a landing page for people to go to too, right? Yep. So there's a few articles there just basically explaining why we're launching the fund, which I've already done today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, a bit more on the stocks, a couple we've talked about today. So you just get a bit more sense for some of the stocks we're going to own in the fund straight up. So, um, so the expressions of interest are there now. Uh, we'll be doing a webinar on uh, Thursday, 16th of March. Um, you know, you're probably not going to learn anything more than what we've talked about today anyway, but uh, you can submit questions there. So if you've got a burning question, by all means, send it in and, and I'll answer it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the subscription coverage, like if you've got no interest in the fund or maybe you want to invest in the fund and do, do some of it yourself, the the launch is at this stage, There's, I think it's the 10th of April, um, which is um, a Monday. Um, so that'll be basically a, a week after we started investing the money in the fund. So we'll know by then what the fund looks like and what stocks we need to cover. And what I expect we'll have ready for people then is we've got a special report which just talks about you know all the different aspects of international investing, which mm-hmm. a lot of people have already been asking for, because um, most people have never bought a stock overseas. They don't even know how to go about it. So we're going to help you there. Um, you'll get a special report with probably half a dozen of the proper stock write-ups, so the prices at which we think they're worth buying at, uh, or, and what we'd sell them at, and you know, and a proper review of the stock going through all the risks and the opportunities. And right. then what we're going to do because we don't want to overwhelm people. Like the whole point of this is we want to make it easy for people. Yeah, that's my number one rule here. Make it easy for people to take their first jump into overseas investing to show them that it's not as risky and scary and frightening as what a lot of people think it is. And so we don't want to just launch and say, look, here's 18 articles, you know, shove that down your gob and see how you cope. Like this is going to freak people out. So yeah. um, so we we'll just be writing up or publishing one to one, no more than two articles per week until we've covered all the stocks in the funds. So it'd be about 20, 20 odd stocks. And um, after that, you know, once things have settled down and we've covered all those stocks, then we'll start uh, we'll start writing articles which we call Ideas Labs, which uh, let, let's say we don't own Microsoft, but it's obviously a wonderful business and we'll do a full write-up on Microsoft and explain, you know, at what price we'd like to buy it. But we won't, you know, keep on going coverage with that stock until we're ready to buy it. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I think that's worth a subscription alone, in my personal view. I, the fact that I don't know what the price is for Intelligent Investor at the moment is like six or seven hundred bucks, whatever it is, to get all the Aussie coverage mm-hmm. plus this international coverage. Like, I just think it's ridiculous. And don't worry, we're not going to put our prices up to two thousand dollars anytime soon, like I'd like. Um, but <laughs> I, I just don't see how you can do without it if you're investing on your own. It's, a, it's an extraordinary bargain, and anyone who's a member is basically getting the international stuff for free. So, mm-hmm. um, if, if you don't want it. Um, yeah, just ignore the overseas articles. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And you can see, easy to see why you guys have so many members and so many passionate members as well, which is just fantastic. Um, but go and check out the webinar. I'll put a link in the show notes to all of the stuff so you know uh, how you can get in contact with Nathan and the team. But mate, maybe just one final question from me is just on this, because I know we we're talking off air about how uh, people like see interest rates go up, they see their mortgage go up a bit, or they see stocks being a bit volatile, they get a bit worried. Maybe they think, oh, I'll wait, like the classic. I've heard that every month 
in my career of investing is, oh, I think the market's going to crash. I'll wait until. But I'm curious, uh, are you sitting on the sidelines? What would you say to people that are sitting on the sidelines? They got all that dry powder. Or they like, what would you say to them? Yeah. So I always uh, have always loved, and this is the same answer I always give for similar questions, is that I always think of Jeremy Grantham's idea of the portfolio of least regret. So, oh, yeah. so what he's saying is that no matter what you do, you're going to regret it. So, you know, if you buy, put 2% of your portfolio in CSL and it goes up 10 times over the next decade, you're going to regret not putting 10% of your portfolio in it. If you put 2% in Star Entertainment two months ago at $3, once that goes to $1.50, you're going to regret it, as we have. So um, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to regret it. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, what are you going to regret the least? Um, you know, are you going to regret not being a bit greedier or taking less risk? Because if you, you know, if you're 100% cash today, for example, and you don't invest, and all of a sudden it turns out that the higher interest rates really haven't meant too much, and everyone goes along with their business, and the market's going up by a few percent a year, and you're getting three or four percent dividend yields, and you're going to miss that. Like you're going to sit there for the next five years, going, "Do I buy now? Do I buy now? Do I buy now?" Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's a horrible situation to be in. Um, but at the same time, you know, you want to, you've got to ask yourself what sort of return you're expecting from your stocks as well. So you can't buy CSL today at 35 times earnings and expect to 10 times your money over the next decade. It's just not going to happen. But maybe if you only want seven or 8% return from one of the best businesses in Australia, if not the best, um, then maybe you buy some shares now. So that, that's the way I look at it. Like everyone is unique. And um, mm. you can't follow anyone else because the way we invest, even with someone who's really like-minded, you can end up with a totally different portfolio to friends who invest the same way I do. Um, it happens all the time. It's, it's like your fingerprints. No one has the same one. No one's going to see everything the same. Everyone has different personal financial circumstances. Um, you know, you, you just the simple rule that I have for a stock is um, Seth Klarman used to say, if you can double your money in four years, just buy it. <laughs> for all the you know ten thousand hours I spent on investing over the you know since two thousand and six, um, that's really what it all comes down to. Mm. Very simple. I love it, mate. Well, thanks for thanks for joining me today, and uh, thanks for uh, yeah just taking the time out. I know you're super busy. Just come off reporting season, and now you're rolling into launching a global fund and global research coverage for members. So I uh, really appreciate you taking the time, and I uh, hope to catch up with you soon. Thanks a lot, mate. I hope your listeners got something out of it and speak soon. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.